Dwight L. Moody once told this story about freedom, which I'll paraphrase. During the Civil War and soon after the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, there was an old black lady who worked at a hotel in the South. A visitor from the North came and found the entire place dirty, the tables, the dishes, and the beds. So she called the black lady and said to her, now you know that the Northern people set you at liberty. I came from the North and I don't like dirt, so I want you to clean the house. The Southern woman did as she was told. It seemed as if she did more work in that half day than she had done in a while. Afterwards, she came to the northerner and said, now, am I free or am I not? When I go to my old master, he says I'm not free. And when I go to my own people, they say I am. And I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me Abraham Lincoln signed the proclamation, but master says he didn't, he hadn't any right to. And here's D.L. Moody's conclusion, quote, So Christian people go along, not knowing whether they are free or not. Why, when they have the spirit, they are free as air. Christ came for that. He didn't come to set us free and then leave us in servitude. He came to give us liberty now and forever. We are the children of the free. Yet we can be confused and fail to enjoy completely the freedom we have in Christ. We can be free as a bird, but imprisoned in the cage of our minds. We don't forget our old ways of living under bondage. We go right back to it like a bad habit. In a movie called Shawshank Redemption, there's a strange character named Brooks. Brooks spent 50 years of his life in prison, and he's about to be paroled. Yet he's having trouble embracing this idea of freedom. The younger fellow inmates who've only been there for a few years have trouble understanding Brooks. One of the main characters, Red, is more sympathetic. He talks about the prison walls that has a way of changing people. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so dependent on them, that's institutionalized. We saw earlier in Galatians 4, verse 9, that they were once in bondage to the weak and beggarly elements. Then Christ set them free. But now they're being tempted to go back under legalism. There's confusion the old ways of becoming institutionalized creeps back. They can't enjoy fully the life of freedom God intends for us. To enjoy that freedom, we need to be mature in understanding. The fullness of time has come, and we have full adult status as sons and heirs. It's good to be humble like a little child, but In another sense, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. 
Thankfully, Jesus gave us the ministry of Paul, the apostle, as a gift to the church. Before we look at today's passage, here's a quick recap of Galatians. We got the salutation in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The thesis statement in verses 6 to 10. In the body of the letter, many observe three major sections from chapter 1, verse 11 to the end of chapter 2. Paul gets personal and defends the origins of the gospel. In 3 and 4, Paul gets doctrinal and defends the contents of the gospel. Finally, from chapter 5 to nearly the end of chapter 6, Paul gets practical and defends the freedom in the gospel. And today, we're starting that third section of Galatians. So let's read chapter 5, 1 through 12 together now. If you're using a pew Bible, it's in page 812. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of our pew Bibles as a gift from us. So again, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. Pew Bible, page 812. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. So nothing jumps out when it comes to the structure of the passage. You may notice that so from um, verses 1 to 6, the focus is more on the Galatians, while in verses 7 to 12, the focus is more on the Judaizers, the ones who are trying to turn the Galatian Christians into Jews. First, the burden of responsibilities put on the Galatians to live in freedom. Then secondly, Paul shifts the focus to the Judaizers who are troubling them. Now, to add some flesh and organs to this sex skeletal structure, I see in these verses two major themes. The trap of legalism and the truth of the gospel. And to bring these ideas to a practical level, I think there are two ways to live free and stay free. Avoid becoming institutionalized and we need to become gospelized. So one, don't stand for the trap of legalism. Don't stand for the trap of legalism. That's verses 1 to 6. 
And two, stay the course in the truth of the gospel. Stay the course in the truth of the gospel. That's verses 7 to 12. First, don't stand for the trap of legalism. Verse 1 is a great segue from the previous doctrinal section to this new practical portion of Galatians. It might be worth committing this verse to memory. It captures the big idea of the letter. It's effective in setting the agenda for this sermon point. It tells us do something, and it tells us don't do something. The two imperatives there are stand fast and don't be entangled. We're told to plant our feet, and we're told to watch our feet. Both are critical to avoid legalism. And what is this yoke of bondage? One dictionary defines yoke as this, a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to the plow or a cart that they are about there to pull. We may not see many yokes in our suburban and urban contexts, but we still get the idea. A yoke connects us to someone else for some mission. Bond servants are under the yoke of their masters. Intimate relationships with unbelievers cause us to be unequally yoked, according to 2 Corinthians 6. The yoke of bondage is certainly not the yoke of Jesus, which is easy and light. The yoke here is the heavy burden of legalism. It's any attempt to please God by human effort, whether it's pagan religion or Jewish ritualism. The core message of the Judaizers is probably the same as what was said in Acts 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is an impossible yoke. Even the great fathers of Israel and the most devout Jews of the day could not bear it. Yet the Judaizers brought this legalism to the Galatians. They're like those Pharisees Jesus condemned in Matthew 23, verse 15. They travel land and sea to win proselytes. They court the Galatians with passion, compelling them to be circumcised, As we saw earlier in the letter, they even wanted them to observe the Jewish calendar. And there's more coming, a lot more. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But Paul here is primarily concerned with circumcision. Uh, You may ask, wait, didn't Paul circumcise Timothy? Also, when he was in Jerusalem, didn't he go out of his way to prove that he's not against the circumcision of Jewish boys? That's in Acts 16 and 21. Yes, he did circumcise Timothy, and he has no issues with the Jewish custom of circumcision. But the matter here is different. First, as for Timothy, there's a difference between a ritual for ministry expediency and a ritual for salvation. Becoming like those under the law to win souls is not the same as actually going under the law. Next, there's a difference between an involuntary act as a Jewish infant 
and a voluntary act as a Gentile adult. J.B. Lightfoot says it well, quote, circumcision is the seal of the law. He who willingly and deliberately undergoes circumcision enters upon a compact to fulfill the law. To fulfill it, therefore, he is bound, and he cannot plead the grace of Christ, for he has entered on another mode of justification. So what the Galatians faced here is not a circumcision as a missionary strategy or circumcision as a normal cultural practice of the day. In this case, it's the initiation into a legalistic religion. They're stepping through the doorway inside a house about to collapse. They got the pen out, and they're about to sign above the dotted line, but it's for apostasy. They're trading in the true gospel for the false gospel. They think they're about to gain all things, but really they're about to lose everything. Paul's yelling at them like Admiral Akbar from Star Wars. It's a trap. And in verse 2 to 4, he's going to explain how it's a trap. And it's best to read these verses together, 2 to 4, not as separate statements. And you can try this at home, maybe. Line up the three verses in three separate lines, and then go... And don't go left to right, but go from top to bottom. And here's what I mean. If the Galatians get circumcised, verse 2, they'd be obligated to keep the whole law, verse 3, and they'd be seeking justification by law, verse 4. And if they seek righteousness in the law, Christ will profit them nothing. They'll be estranged from him. They'll fall from grace. Paul's point is clear. Divine grace and human works are incompatible in salvation. Only one can take the place of your Savior. It's either Jesus or yourself. Can't be both, can't be mixed. John Calvin says it well, quote, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. So don't stand for the trap of legalism. Now, let me say a word about the phrase falling from grace. It does not mean that someone genuinely saved can lose their salvation. But if someone you observe moves away from Christ and ends up seeking righteousness in the law, it means they're never saved to begin with. If someone is truly saved and heirs, the Lord will discipline him or her restore him, and lead him back to grace. You may say now, legalism sounds awful. Why would anyone sign up for that? I don't want to get tangled up with this yoke of bondage. Well, it's not like the Judaizers are walking around with the big old yoke, asking Gentiles want to try it on. It's going to be more subtle, more like the way the serpent tricked Eve by his craftiness. So how does Paul the Apostle get us prepared for these sneak attacks? We move on to verses 5 and 6, and we have our answer. Let me read those verses again. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Consider verses 5 and 6, your armory. And if you go inside, you'll find three equipment. If we wield them, we can stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do you see them? Their faith, hope, and love. In both verses, there's a mention of faith. Faith is the foundational principle. It's where we begin. It's where every Christian begins his or her walk with the Lord. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The reason that we're not justified by works is that we'll never be done with the works of the law. If you're done with one, there's tens more. If you obey ten, there are hundreds more to go. And if you mess up once, it's game over. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, is, he is guilty of all. So we're bound to fail if we're bound to the law. It's inevitable that we'll take wrong actions, say false things, and think evil in our hearts. There's no way we can keep the whole law and be justified by the law. In a word, we're in trouble. But this is the good news. Christ came, God and man at the same time, came to save us from our sin, died on the cross in our place, taking upon himself the penalty of sin that we deserve. He gave his perfect life so that we might live. He was buried and rose again from the grave the third day. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, we have a chance to repent and trust in Christ. We must turn from ourselves and our sins and we must turn to Jesus as the only way of salvation. It is Christ who makes us free, not our works. The gift of heaven is all grace through faith alone in Christ alone. I do hope you trust in him as soon as possible. If you'd like to talk more about what it means to make this decision, we offer a class called Christianity Explained. So please sign up with the connect card, or talk to a member of our church after service. So that's faith, and most of us here made that decision to trust in Christ many years ago. But faith is not static. It's not stuck in your past history. Connected to your faith is a hope that is focused on the future. Look again in verse 5. We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The righteousness here is not the legal declaration of innocence before God at the moment of saving faith. It's the sinless perfection we're granted when we meet Jesus face to face someday. We see this future aspect of our salvation in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
And once we're glorified in our bodies, we'll no longer struggle with sin in our flesh. That's hope. Just as we look backwards in faith in the finished work of Christ 2,000 years ago, we look forward in hope, in anticipation of his return someday. So the natural question is, what do we do for the time being? Christ paid paid for the sum of our sins and left nothing to be done. Circumcision adds nothing and uncircumcision subtracts nothing. So where are we getting that motivation for here and now? That's where love comes in. We who believe wait in hope for heaven and we work in love on earth. We're going to discuss more of this in the second half of this chapter. But for now, consider how love takes the focus off of you and it puts the focus on those around us. Legalism is self-centered and exalts self at the expense of others. Love takes that vertical dimension of our faith and gives it a horizontal direction. There you have them. The three things you need to stand fast in liberty. Faith, hope, and love. Stand firmly, donning the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, overall, verses 1 to 6 give us a picture of a rugged, stout soldier, unmoved from his position, waiting as a watchman, faithful in duty. But with that kind of image in our minds, don't stand for the trap of legalism. But we're not only on the defensive, we must advance and move forward. And that shifts the metaphor and leads us to the second half of today's passage. There we see the second way to live free and stay free. Stay the course in the truth of the gospel. So we can divide up the six verses of 7 to 12 into two equal parts of three verses. In verses 7 to 9, Paul gives us two images to expose the enemy's strategy. And then in verses 10 to 12, he addresses the Galatians, the Judaizers, and he presents himself as an example of how to stay true to the gospel message. We start in verses 7 to 8 with the picture of a swift runner. He or she's eventually distracted, though, and strays off the path. Look at the question in verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth? It looks similar to chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. But remember, the image here is that of a race. The Judaizers were cutting off the Galatians on the road. Not only that, the Galatians were swerving off the lane and in danger of crashing. Instead of staying the course, they're turning away from him who called them in the grace of Christ 
to a different gospel. They lost their focus. They turned their ears away from God's voice. They're persuaded and duped by the Judaizers. Paul shifts to a completely different imagery in verse 9. We move from the racetrack to the kitchen. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is an important metaphor in the New Testament. It warns us in a picturesque way that some spiritual dangers are viral, subtle, and dare I say pandemical in the church. Jesus even used leaven to describe false doctrines, religious and political, as well as hypocrisy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.8 uses leaven to describe our old ways, malice, and wickedness. Here in Galatians, we're talking about legalism. Just a tiny bit is all we need to corrupt our church. If you're like me, you're mostly scared of moral corruption in the church, like financial impropriety or sexual misconduct. And certainly, those are real dangers. We see them in the early churches of Corinth and Thyatira. In our time and in our church, we do our best to guard against sin's influence. But the Bible also teaches us not to tolerate legalism. Legalism is is also leaven that leavens the whole lump. To guard against legalism, we must demand from each other only what the Bible demands from us. We must remember that this leaven is subtle. Be vigilant. Watch yourselves. It could be that we're more tolerant of legalism than we think. In some church cultures, Common examples of legalism are abstinence from alcohol and secular music. Now, to be clear, such decisions can be personal convictions that the Lord leads you to hold. They could be individual applications you draw from scriptures. If that's the case, more power to you. But some exalt personal convictions to the highest level of universal policies. Some use individual applications as the test of salvation in others. Now we're spilling some leaven here, sprinkling some leaven there. Don't say what you want the Bible to say. Say what the Bible actually says. That'll help us fight against legalism. If we stay true to the scriptures, we'll stay the course in the truth of the gospel. We'll discern what is and what isn't an ingredient of salvation. Moving on to verses 10 to 12, Paul has a word for the Galatians, a word for the Judaizers, and a word about himself. First, the Galatians, look what he says in the first half of verse 10. Despite his disappointment with the Galatians, Paul's confident that most of them are truly saved and that they'll learn from their mistakes. He believes they'll come around to his way of thinking. 
Secondly, Paul has a word or two for his enemies. There's one in the second half of verse 10. He who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, earlier in chapter 1, verse 7, and a few few verses down in chapter 5, verse 12, he speaks of a plurality, while here he speaks of a singular person. I'm not sure how these false teachers organize themselves as a group, whether there's a hierarchy of command. I tend to think there is an alpha in the wolf pack. Not 100% sure. What is clear is that if this one and the others with him do not straighten up, there's a terrible judgment coming. There's another word for them in verse 12. It's pretty harsh. Paul's wishing that the Judaizers would become eunuchs, that they would emasculate themselves. This might seem over the top for Paul, but there's some poetic justice here. In some parts of the world, law enforcers cut off the hands of thieves and castrate child molesters. It's only appropriate that deceivers preaching the false gospel and circumcising Gentiles should be neutered as punishment. It's a very serious matter. The word for trouble in this verse is not the same as trouble in verse 10 or back in chapter 1, verse 7. It's much more intense. It's found in Acts 17 and 21. These Judaizers were stirring up rebellion among God's people, turning their world upside down. Thirdly, Paul has a word about himself in verse 11. He's a model of how to stay the course in the truth of the gospel. Of course, before he met Christ, he himself was a preacher of circumcision. He was circumcised himself on the eighth day concerning zeal persecuting the church. But now he preaches Christ, and now he is persecuted as a church leader. Paul got all the hate because he refused to remove the offense of the cross by adding in circumcision. This would add human performance and law to the gospel of grace. To add anything to the finished work of Jesus is to take away everything. You're not just diluting the message, you're emptying the message. If you take away the stumbling block, and the foolishness of the cross, you take away the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you take away the aroma of death, you also take away the aroma of life. This was too costly for Paul. Such change in the message will certainly please many Jews, but it would offend God. Paul would rather offend men than displease the Lord. So he decided to suffer persecution. The Judaizers, on the other hand, did the exact opposite. It says later in chapter 6, verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So will you be like Paul, or will you be like the Judaizers? We we face our own temptation to compromise. 
Decide now to stay the course in the truth of the gospel. Don't stand for the trap of legalism. But we've been warned, if you're a straight shooter about the truth like Paul, people might shoot at you. If you're a textbook when it comes to the gospel, people might throw the book at you. But even more than Paul as a model of faith, look to the cross. See how it offends your self-righteousness. At the cross, we see why we defend the gospel. We see why there's nothing to add. And verse 3 of our final song, It Is Well, reminds us of the sufficiency of the cross. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be good enough to find favor with you. It is your gracious promises that we lean on. And Lord, we thank you for saving many of us in this room. But Lord, there's still part of us that want to earn acceptance with you and with others. But legalism is not only just a principle out there, it's a struggle of the flesh within us. So may we just lose ourselves in your grace. May we look at your word, your promises. Live free according to your will. Don't fall for the trap of legalism and tell others about the truth of the gospel that sets them free. We thank you that your son has set us free and that we are free indeed. It's in his name we pray. Amen.